Okay, today we're doing thermodynamic functions as part of chapter four in environmental organic chemistry by Rene P. Schwarzenbach, Philip M. Gushwind, and Dieter M. Imboden. Some good German names there. Uh, so for this chapter, we're gonna be focusing on equal equilibrium, what it means, why we care, how we measure it, and things that impact it. So equilibrium is what chemical concentrations will be when no net changes between states or transformations are occurring anymore. Proton transfer reactions, which are a major component of equilibrium, as we'll get to with pKa and a discussion of organic acids and bases, uh, are fundamentally proton transfer reactions, and these tend to be quick. Partition and reactions, which we'll talk about later, um, may be faster than transport or chemical reactions within the environment. So we essentially want to use equilibrium to describe phase changes within an, within an equilibrium approach, even if there is no equilibrium. So even if we have to apply kinetics, equilibrium can still be used to assess the direction of chemical flux, evaluate transformation spontaneity, or may be required for the kinetic model itself and assumed at interface. And we'll talk about that with Raoult's law. So our goal is to review thermodynamic entities uh, with respect to partitioning and chemical reaction equilibria and assess the extent of disequilibria through the use of Gibbs free energy, enthalpy, entropy, S, chemical potential, mu, fugacity, F, activity, A, activity coefficient, gamma, and acid-base interactions. So we're going to start with chemical potential, or mu. So chemicals in situ have internal and external energies. Internal energies refer to a molecule's chemical bonds, their bond vibrations, the bending, flexing, and rotation within the molecule. External energies are whole molecule translations, reorientations, and environmental interactions. This energy is dependent on temperature, pressure, and chemical composition of the system. So the average energy state of a compound, or I, so compound is uh, abbreviated I in this case, in a bunch of substances, we use G, or the total free energy, Gibbs free energy, which is equal to H minus Ts, where H is entropy, I'm sorry, where H is enthalpy, T is temperature and S is entropy. Our absolute temperature is in K. So G is a function of P, T, N1, N2, Ni, 2NN, which is equal to the sum of Ni mu I from compound 1 to N, where N I is the amount of compound in moles in a system containing N moles, where mu is the chemical potential of any compound I, so that mu I in joules per mole is equal to partial derivation G times joules or in joules over partial derivation N1 moles, where temperature, pressure, and N compound does not equal one compound. So Nj does not equal Ni. So we express Gibbs free energy at a constant temperature, pressure, and composition with each added increment of compound I. The more I we have, or the more compound we have, the mu I will change. 
So mu can also be referred to as a partial molar free energy, or GI, of a compound. When we think of it like this, it ends up as mu i is equivalent to gi equal to hi minus tsi, which is a way of saying how easy a compound can move or be transported or transformed. So this idea is very similar to the principle of hydrostatic head potential, but we're not going to talk about that because physics is lame and I don't like fluid mechanics. But I guess it works for some people. So mu, or the chemical potential, is an intensive entity. It is independent of how large the system is. But g is an extensive function that changes with the proportional size of the system. So mu is only equivalent to gi when we hold the size of the system constant. If the size changes, then mu i cannot equal gi, or is not equivalent to gi. Fugacity. So measuring a molecule's urge to escape or flee a system is known as fugacity. The higher a gas pressure, the more likely the molecules are trying to escape more insistently. So this would be an example of higher fugacity. We can measure uh, fugacity using a couple equations. So it's very important that we develop a reference state. So we have to determine if we're going to be working in aqueous matrix, the pure liquid, or an indefinite dilution reference state. And in this case, uh, our first example is going to be an ideal gas. And remember, an ideal gas is where you assume that the molecules do not interact with each other. So here, uh, I don't want to read all of the derivations because that will suck. But at the end of the day, when we use an ideal gas as our reference state, the mu of a compound in the gas is equivalent to the original mu of the gas plus RT from the gas law. So that's R constant, T temperature, times the natural log of pressure initial, uh, pressure final of compound over pressure initial of the compound. So. Here we're changing with the intensity of the gas pressure. But this isn't going to work for real gases, right? Because remember, we assumed an ideal gas in reference state. So for real gases, the composition amounts matter and the molecular interactions matter. So we use a theta Ig coefficient as an empirically derived fugacity coefficient. So F, remember F is fugacity, of any particular compound is equal to the fugacity coefficient theta times pressure of that specific compound. So here we can substitute our fugacity equation for what I just read you. So mu of any compound is equal to mu zero, or the original compound, plus RT natural log Fi, or fugacity, which is equal to theta pressure over original pressure. And if we are working in the standard state, so if we are defining a standard state within our reference, um, we can assume that Fi or fugacity is equal to Pi or one bar or 0.987 atms. So we can basically use the ideal gas law sometimes, but not all the time. So most environmental conditions are at ATM pressures and they have very low gas densities. So if that's the case, you can go ahead and use theta 
of the compound is equal to one and you can assume an ideal gap. But it is good to remember why we are assuming that reference state and whether or not that's actually true. So fugacity of a gas I in a mixture is fugacity is equal to theta xgp, which is approximately equal to pressure. So theta is our fugacity coefficient, x is our mole fraction of I, p is pressure. So we need to know this because it's important to define our reference states. So this helps us define the conditions because otherwise we wouldn't be able to see the change or what our numbers mean. Like if I tell you um, 36 alpha, well, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like if I define the state where if I'm telling you what the rules are, that 36 alpha refers to a specific thing on this table, that's helpful. So that's what we're doing right now is we're figuring out how to define our reference states so we understand the rules. And then we can compare our results uh, to something known or something that um, from a relative basis can give us more information, right? Like which two chemicals uh, will be more volatile in any situation or which test should we run to find a chemical based on its volatility in a specific matrix or something like that, right? So these most common reference states are pure liquid, and that's usually used for a phase transfer, infinite dilution state, which is typically used as a reaction of organic chemicals in aqueous solutions, or three, a natural elemental form when we're expecting a lot of bonds to be broken and reformed. I think this is a good one for atmospheric chemistry. Right? So the idea is that we clearly define the conditions of pressure, temperature, and concentrations. These are known as the standard conditions. So remember, just like the ideal gas law, temperature, pressure has to be defined. Then we have our reference state, which has to be defined. And then these two create the standard state of a chemical species. And then we can apply the equations. So our standard chemical potential is dependent on our standard conditions and our reference state with the equation mu ig is equal to mu ig raised to zero, or the initial, plus rt natural log pi over pressure initial. Uh, and mu of a compound is equal to initial mu plus rt natural log f fugacity of the compound over initial pressure. So those are two equations that we can use to define the chemical potential. And why do we care about chemical potential again? Because chemical potential is one of those thermodynamic entities. So chemical potential is going to tell us how the reaction equilibria functions or assess the extent of disequilibria. So fugacity and pressure are related. So PIL and PIS for liquids and solids respectively, where fugacity of a liquid is equal to gamma liquid times pressure liquid and the fugacity in a solid is equal to gamma solid times pressure solid, where gamma is equal to the activity coefficient, and that accounts for non-ideal behavior. So as we move away from ideal behavior and we start assuming molecular interactions, we have to add an activity coefficient, and that's gamma. So in a pure liquid compound, and remember pure liquid reference state is um, looking at a phase transfer, so that's like evaporating water, but we're not going to use water because water is very special. So we're going to use liquid benzene 
So we're evaluating liquid benzene. We're thinking that it's a pure liquid. It's only benzene. It's in a phase transfer, so it's moving from liquid to gas. Um, and we are going to account for some non-ideal behavior based on its fugacity. So Routh's law says that fugacity is equal to the activity coefficient times the mole fraction times the fugacity of the liquid itself, so the pure liquid compound. Um, and that is an empirically derived number. So uh, we can simplify that to just mean uh, activity coefficient times molar fraction times pressure in a pure liquid. Um, we can also do that with a gas phase. So if we assume a gas phase in liquid solution, um, we can do the same thing, where mu of the compound is equal to mu of the liquid empirically derived plus RT times natural log of fugacity over pressure. So the activity of any compound in a given phase is a relative measure and it is dependent on the reference state. So that's why we keep harping on determining your reference state and how you're going to look at your empirical uh, constants. Because if you switch reference states between chemicals or if you're comparing different things in your reference states or you don't have a reference state, then it's not going to work, right? The number that you get is not going to have any basis in reality, so how are you going to compare it to anything? So a quick review, enthalpy is the attraction or attachment of a compound's atom to their surroundings, intra- and intermolecular forces, so it applies to both. Enthalpy is like glue holding bits of a molecule to itself and to its surroundings. So if we are only interested in partitioning organic compounds, like between soil and water, for example, we need to choose a reference state that only deals with intermolecular interactions. So we are looking for intermolecular enthalpy amounts. High enthalpy means that it is going to do lots of random things and it's not going to stabilize. Low enthalpy means that it has low, uh, very high reaction formation and so it's going to be stable or more stable than it's comparable. Entropy is the freedom or orientation, configuration, or translation of molecules. The more ways a molecule has to twist and change, the more freedom it has in its bonding electrons, which means the more randomness exists. Bigger entropy, more reactive, right? So here we can represent that using um, RT, natural log activity constant, is equal to G of the energy of the compound, whatever we're looking at, is equal to enthalpy, E minus TS enthalpy, where enthalpy and entropy are partial molar excess enthalpy and excess entropy of a compound I in phase L or liquid. So solutions in water are special. Remember I said that we were going to come back to that? We are coming back to that. Solutions in water are special. Aqueous phases are special cases with large negative entropy contributions. Um, which means that negative entropy means they don't do as much, right? They, they limit themselves or they don't have enough energy to do crazy things. So equilibrium and partitioning constants, and we'll come back to that. So um, let's do a quick review of equilibrium and partitioning constants. So here we have K of any compound is equal to the concentration of compound in phase one over the concentration of compound in phase two. 
So remember, we're moving chemicals between phases. We're evaporating things, we're absorbing to soil, we're doing stuff. So the K of an equilibrium constant in this case is talking about the two different phases that we're moving through. And this can be reflected in mu. So there's our chemical partitioning constant again and with the same equations. So the difference between chemical potentials, so mu of a liquid one over mu of compound two, or compound one over compound two, or phase one over phase two, is equal to RT times natural log of molar fraction one over molar fraction two, plus RT times linear natural log activity constant phase one over activity constant phase two. And at equilibrium, the natural log of K in both phases is equivalent to the natural log of molar fraction phase one over molar fraction phase two, which is equal to the negative RT natural log activity coefficient one minus RT linear, whoops, RT natural log activity coefficient two all divided by RT, um, which is also known as E raised to negative one, two G over RT where K prime is the partition on a mole fraction basis. So again, the delta between phase one, phase two G is equal to the change of Gibbs free energy from phase one to phase two. So when we need to express concentrations in a bulk phase using a molar scale, we end up with concentration of any compound is equal to the mole fraction of mole I times mole, total moles the negative first over the molar volume times the total liquid volume in total moles to the negative first, where C of the concentration is the concentration in moles per liter of any I in phase liquid, and VL is the molar volume of the mixture or solution. So we are going to apply Amagat's law as a first approximation. So this is V molar volume is equal to the sum of molar fraction J times molar volume J at any amount J, where XJ and VJ are molar fractions and molar volumes of prior components. So molar volume of L equals the molar volume of W or water, which is equal to 0 0.0181 liters per mole at 25 degrees C. That's empirically derived. We can just look those up. Like you don't have to solve for any of these. We can just look them up. But anyway, our partition coefficient becomes K of any compound phase one, phase two is equivalent to the concentration at phase one over the concentration at phase two, which is equal to the molar volume in phase two over the molar volume phase one times E raised to the negative RT natural log activity constant one minus RT Activity constant phase two all over RT, which can then be simplified to molar volume two over molar volume one times E raised to delta negative delta G of one and two over RT, which is what we just said. So it's the same thing. It's the same idea as Sprout's law. So let's do a quick review of organic acids and bases, right? So this is a proton transfer. This is really common. It's something that we deal with all the time. 
So proton transfers can only happen if there is an acid, HA, and a proton donor reacting with a base B and a proton acceptor. So we get HA reacts to form A minus plus H plus, and H plus plus B reacts to form BH plus. Um, the sum of those reactions are HA plus B reacts to form BH plus A negative, where A negative is called the conjugate base, of HA and BH plus is the conjugate acid of B. These reactions are usually very fast and very reversible, very common in aqueous solutions, so we'll focus on these. Um, we want to do a quick review of water. So water with any sort of acid ends up being HA plus H2O reacts to form H3O positive plus A negative. We're going to hold some things standard. So we're going to say that the concentration of our compound of interest at the beginning is one mole, molar. And we're going to say that the activity constant, activity prime of any compound is going to equal one. That only counts if it's actually water. If it's seawater or if it's something else highly ionic, you cannot use an activity constant equal to one. You have to actually go through the um, chemical partitioning equation of mu to discover what our actual chemical potential is. But in this case, we're going to use one. Um, so here we've got uh, the H3O plus ion reacting to form H2O plus H plus, And this gives us a reaction, gives free energy of 0 kilojoules per mole, or K equals 1. And this is a change in fugacity. It gives free enthalpy at zero in aqueous solutions equal to zero at any temperature. So here we've just made some assumptions that it's water. Water does what water does. It freely dissociates into the hydronium ion and the hydrogen ion without any help from us whatsoever. And it doesn't require any action or any um, heat of reaction. Uh, that's the wrong word. It doesn't require any energy input to the system, right? It freely dissociates and associates at equilibrium. So that's HA is equivalent to H plus plus H uh, A minus. So our chemical potentials of our species become mu HA is equal to mu HA prime or zero plus RT natural log activity constant HA times the concentration of HA. Um, mu H plus is equal to RT natural log activity constant H plus times concentration of H plus ions. Uh, mu A minus is equal to mu A minus initial plus RT natural log activity constant A minus times the concentration of A. Pretty standard stuff. It's basically the pH equation, just broken out into like specific species. So just think pH and then specific species and then don't put them together quite yet because when we put them together, that's going to be our pKa, which is basically pH without a log. So many acidity constants are mixed acidity constants and are defined for specific aqueous medium. So for example, 0.05 to 0.1 molar salt, um, they're, they're just specific, right? All of these have to be empirically derived for the most part using titration values because chemistry is weird. So you can't really like mathematically determine some of these things. Um, but you can put them in a table and you can look them up. So this becomes the log of concentration A minus over HA, which then is transformed to log of K minus log activity constant H plus 
concentration H plus, I'm sorry, activity log of hydrogen ions times the concentration of hydrogen, which then equals pH minus pKa. Ta-da! So you already knew that, but there's the moral of the story. You knew we were getting there, but here we are. Um, so this tells us when H plus activity is at equilibrium or at equal parts non-dissociated and dissociated forms, right? So that's what we were saying, that, that water dissociates freely, it does what it does, and that's why we base the pH scale on it is because at equilibrium, it is equal parts hydronium and hydrogen. That's the whole part, the point of having a pH scale. Um, so let's talk about what a strong organic acid is. A strong organic acid has a pKa of less than 3. So an example of this would be trifluoro trifluoroacetic acid, 2,4-dinitrobenzoic acid, and 2,4,6-trinitrophenol. And these are usually present in dissociated anionic forms. The stronger an acid is, or the lower its pKa, the weaker its conjugate base will be, with a higher pKb. So remember, pKb high, weak conjugate base. So a neutral base with a pKb value of less than 3, or its conjugate acid pKa value of greater than 11, because remember you can just swap it on the 14 scale, will be present in water primarily as a cation at ambient pH values. So temperature affects K values by this formula. Equilibrium constant times temperature 2 equals K times temperature 1 times E raised to the negative change of reaction, enthalpy reaction, uh, starting over R times 1 over T2 minus t uh, 1 over T1, where he, enthalpy of reaction original, starting, is the standard enthalpy of reaction. So it tends to be very small for organic acids and increases with increasing pKa values. Strong acids can neglect temperature on KIA, but weak acids will definitely be impacted. So you don't have to account for temperatures if your pKa value is below 3, but you do if it is 4 to 11. pH of natural water tends to be most influenced by inorganic acids and bases, so that's H2CO3, um, bicarbonate, carbon dioxide, these all act as buffers. So environmental systems tend to operate between pH 4 and 9. Most pKa values of import will be between 2 and 11. Our main areas of interest, we would want to consider aliphatic and aromatic carboxyl groups, aromatic hydroxyl groups like phenolic compounds, aliphatic and aromatic amino groups, nitrogen atoms in aromatic compounds, aliphatic and aromatic amino groups, aliphatic and aromatic thiols, and sulfonic acids. So the delta free energy of reaction for proton dissociation is given by the difference in the standard free energies of formation of the acid and conjugate base in aqueous solution. We want to evaluate how much the molecule favors or decreases the free energy of formation or disfavors by increasing the free energy of formation between the ionic and neutral form of the molecule. So here we've got an alcohol of some kind. I think it's an acetic acid of some kind. All right, so we've got an acid, acetic acid 
Um, and it's the same acid, but we're basically moving a chlorine from the first carbon to the second carbon to the third carbon. So there's three pictures of this acetic acid of some kind um, with a chlorine addition. The first acid, which does not have a chlorine, is 4.81 pKa. So that's a weak acid. The second acid has the chlorine attached to the first carbon on the acetic acid, and it has a pKa of 4.52, so it is decreasing. So if pKa is decreasing, it is increasing in uh, acidic strength. Um, so it is stabilizing. The next one, we move the, car the chlorine to the second carbon, and we get a pKa of 4.05. And the third example, we move it to the third carbon and we get 2.86. So here we are stabilizing a negative charge, decreasing the pKa, and making formation less likely. So it is disfavoring um, energy of formation. An organic base with an electron withdrawing substitute substituent will destabilize the acid form into cation and also lower the pKa. This is like the negative inductive effect. This is the negative inductive effect. So there are some positive inductive effects where electron donating effects that can do interesting things that are pretty complicated, um, but I'm not going to try and explain them because I don't think I know what I'm talking about. But there's a really nice chart in the book where it talks about inductive versus resonance. And let's talk about resonance, because resonance is one of the great stabilizing forces of um, molecules. So with unsaturated compounds, remember unsaturated compounds are those that do not have a full complement of hydrogen atoms. Um, these are aromatics and olefinic molecules. They have mobile, quote unquote, mobile uh, pi electrons. So the inductive effect may be felt over more bonds. They can also have delocalization of electrons or a smearing, quote unquote, smearing of electrons over many bonds, which is neat. I like resonance. This can significantly increase the stability of an organic species and decrease the pKa, resulting in greater stability. So for example, here we have CH3 bonded to OH, uh, and we are breaking it apart and putting it back together again to its component bit. So CH3O and H positive with a pKa of 16. So you can see that as we move it around on the, oops, so now we have another one. So now we're moving to a benzene ring with an OH group attached in the meta position. And we're adding a hydrogen. So we're popping the hydrogen off and then seeing what happens to the electron once we pop that hydrogen off. So in the first one, you can see the O negative is all by its lonesome, and then it's going to swap the double bond and put the negative onto the first position corner of the ring. And then you can also see that that's not going to work out. So the double bond is going to swap um, from next door, and then it's going to put the electron on the third carbon and it's going to swap again with the double bond next door to it. Uh, and now the carbon is going to be on, I'm sorry, the electron is going to be on five carbon and the double bond remains on the oxygen. So you can see that the ring basically just passes the electron around every other carbon. And these are because of the pi bonds, obviously. 
So anything that can help accommodate electrons will help stabilize the molecule and give resonance. So there are even some heteroatoms with non-binding electrons that may be in resonance. Here are pi systems that have an electron donating resonance effect or a plus R and decrease acidity by increasing pKa. So that's kind of the inverse of what we were just talking about. But the important part is the electron has some place to go, right? So if you have multiple pi bonds, then it doesn't really matter what happens, whether there's an inductive effect or an electronegative effect or whatever. As long as the, ad, as long as the electron has a home that it can move to, the molecule will be more stable. So some groups with a negative inductive effect or negative I can even have a positive resonance effect or plus R at the same time. So there's lots going on. So proximity effect. We're going to talk about some hydrogen bonding and some steric effects. And these are very apparent in the ortho and para positions of the aromatic rings. So remember, ortho is like position one carbon. Meta would then be like position three carbon. And then para would be like position six carbon. Oops. Let me think about that. One, two, three. So ortho would be one, meta would be two, para would be three. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So pKa is complicated, right? It's influenced by inductive resonance and proximity effects. And we're going to talk about one relationship that's pretty important for that. So this is the Hammett relationship. So in substituted benzoic acid, the effect of substituents in either the meta or para position on the standard free energy change the carboxyl group's dissociation and can be expressed as the sum of free energy change of the dissociation of the unsubstituated compound or delta RGH and or original and contributions of various substituents in delta RGJ original. So the change in Gibbs reaction initial equals the change in Gibbs enthalpy reaction initial plus the sum of the reaction of Gibbs energy initial to some value j, where constant theta j is equal to the change in Gibbs reaction initial over 2.303 RT. So we have to use a meta and a para substitution since each has a different inductive or resonance effect, which is separate from any electronic factors. So remember, electronic factors are like electronegative orders. Where pKa equals pKa enthalpy minus the sum of theta j uh, at j equals 1, or j equals whatever. So rho is a measure of how sensitive the dissociation reaction is to substitution as compared to another chemical. So this is Hammett's again, right? Change in reaction of Gibbs initial equals change in reaction of Gibbs enthalpy initial minus rho times 2.303 RT, sum of theta j from j. And in equilibrium terms, it is log Ka equals log Ka enthalpy plus rho sum j theta j or pKa equals pKaH minus rho sum theta JOJ. So the proximity effects mean that a single theta for ortho substitution can't be found for all acids, but it seems to be reasonably accurate for classes of chemicals, i.e. PAHs or substituted phenols, etc. 
Hammett is useful for figuring out the reactivity of organic compounds with electric and steric effects. It's an example of linear free energy relationships, or LFER, and is a correlation description outside of thermodynamics. So it's not exactly a law. It's something, it's a good rule of thumb, I guess, to use. It relies on the understanding of how a portion of a molecule's structure influences properties through incremental changes in intermolecular interactions or reactivities through inductive resonance and steric effects. Good stuff. So next one is earth systems and compartments. We're going to be going through atmosphere, surface waters and sediments, soil and groundwater, um, and get into some earth science. Good job.